Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And I am Boyce Washington. And on the other side of me, you'll be hearing from in just a second is the Pastor Richard Washington. And we are the Science of the Covenant. This is our ministry. If you haven't known, uh, we have started to move uh, some of our content over to odyssey.com. So if at any time that we may have issues on YouTube or whatever, you can go look for us at odyssey.com at science of the covenant. You will find our material there and we are still in the stages of migrating our videos over to that platform also. So you can always look for us there as well as you can also find us on Spotify podcast, Apple podcast, Google podcast, just to name this few. And I believe also iHeartRadio. So welcome. Hoping everybody is enjoying their holy day today, the holy Shabbat. And also, if you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, please feel free to Email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com and we will try to get to your questions or comments uh, while this podcast is live so the pastor can answer them and respond to your comment. If you notice, we are on part 17 of this world's kingdoms. Was there a kingdom here prior to earth being created by Yah? Did Yah create something from nothing? All of these questions are being told in this world's kingdoms. Also, if you haven't tuned in to some of the other ones of this world's kingdoms, everyone builds on each other. I would suggest you go back and review our previous ones so you can get caught up and understand where the pastor is coming from. So if you're ready, I'm ready. If you have your Bibles, your scriptures, your pen, your pad, your iPad, your tablet, your computer, whatever, Ever the case may be to take notes, you want to be taking notes. With that, I will turn it over to the pastor. Okay, thank you very much, boys. What we want to do is continue. And it looks like we are winding down on these series. And as far as I can tell, after today, we may have about two more that should uh, be able to complete this series. Uh, but I'm trying to give enough to give us a good background on why there were other kingdoms on this earth prior to Adam and Eve, but I wanted to try to not only take my time, but to lay a good foundation so we can see. And as I've stated earlier and before, this is not a salvational issue. It's just something to give us more information about what transpired before Adam and Eve had actually taken up occupancy here on this planet earth and what was going on. And we can probably better understand the conflict between Satan and Yeshua and between Elohim's people and the people of Satan. So we want to continue. I think when we last uh, met last Shabbat, I told you we'll be talking about the possibility of there being two gardens of, e uh, of Eden. Now this two garden uh, theory it's put out by some, not all, but some may go with the two garden theory. And we want to look at that particular theory. And then we want to make some analyzations uh, about that. So with that being said, what we want to do is have a word of prayer and 
go right into our discourse for today. Eternal Father, we thank you that you have blessed us to come through a new week. And at the end of a new week, and at the end of this week, oh, Heavenly Father, is a Shabbat, and we want to give you praise. Because from last Shabbat until now, it was your grace that uphold us, of upheld us, and saw us through even until today. And we realize Shabbat is one of the greatest days and one of the best days and the joyful days that we can engage in the understanding of the scriptures, in being with you, in being with thy people, and having the fellowship that we need in order to refresh our souls that we may indeed go into a new week. So we ask that as we explore thy word, that thy word may be made known to us, that we can understand some of the significance of what was going on on this planet before Adam and Eve occupied it, that we may be better Bible students for you. Pray for the speaker, pray for those who listen, and most of all, we pray that we all can take heed to these things and to be able to develop our lives in such a way that when you do come, we can meet you in peace. Is our prayer in Yeshua's name, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, what we want to do is turn to our first text. And as I pointed out, there's a theory that some propose that there are two gardens of Eden. However, I haven't seen any evidence of this in the scripture that would support a two garden theory. Is there any reason logically that there would be two Edenic gardens? My reasoning for believing in a one garden of Eden is because there was only one earth that was destroyed and restored. And in the restoration of this earth, there was no mentioning of the Garden of Eden being destroyed in the deluge. Scripture merely states that Elohim planted a garden in eastward in Eden. Okay. If as Ezekiel says that he, the anointed cherub, which was Lucifer, we find in Ezekiel 28, 13, which says, thou has been in Eden, the garden of Elohim, every precious stones was thy covering. And so when we read in Ezekiel 28, 13, what we're looking at is, it says that, in talking about he had been in the garden, even though it was talking about the king of Tyrus, but we discovered in verse 14 that he was talking about the cherub. He was a covering cherub, and this was Lucifer, and that he was in the garden. Now, when we go back to uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible tells us, it says, and... Yahweh Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, so when we look at the fact that Lucifer, who was the covering cherub in Ezekiel 28, 13, the Bible says he was in the garden. And then we look at Genesis 2, 8, it says that Adam was in the garden. 
it would seem to me that if we made a case for two gardens of Eden, then why wouldn't those who are writing on this subject alert us to an awareness that when there was a deluge to destroy the world, that the Garden of Eden was destroyed along with it. And when Adam came into being, Elohim made another one. So why would Elohim make two gardens, one for Satan and one for Adam? Why would, why would he do that? It's almost saying he made one earth for Adam and one earth for Lucifer. Moreover, when we consider how Ezekiel, Isaac, and Joel speak about the Garden of Eden, there's no conclusive evidence that they even hinted at a two-garden theory. Let us consider the following texts in which they mention the Garden of Eden. So let us consider the text that deals with the Garden of Eden in, in, uh, in the scriptures so we can get some idea. Okay, we go back to our uh, initial text that is found in Ezekiel 28 and verse 13 that we uh, had already looked at. The Bible says here, it says, and thou hast been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. And then it talks about all of the precious stones and how he was made. So when we read Ezekiel 28, 13, it, it merely speaks about the garden of Elohim. Okay, it's called the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Elohim. Okay, but it says nothing about no two, no two gardens. Now, in the same uh, uh, book, Ezekiel, he mentions Eden again. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 31. And in Ezekiel chapter 31, we want to read about three verses in that area, in that chapter, that uh, uh, initiates or highlights the Garden of Eden. Okay, in 31, we want to look at the first verse is number nine. And the Bible says here in Ezekiel 31, verse nine, I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of Elohim envied him. Now you notice, notice in this verse here, it's somewhat the same as Ezekiel 28, 13, but it does something a little different. He says, uh, I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches. Even though he may be talking about a kingly ruler, he still is talking about the Garden of Eden. So, and then he compares, he compares uh, uh, the first part of this verse with the second part. He said, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the Garden of Elohim, he said, all the trees of, of Eden that were in the Garden of Elohim uh, envy him. So whatever he's comparing it with, he's comparing it with the Garden of Eden. And you notice he's used the same wordage that he used in Ezekiel uh, 28, 13 by saying uh, the trees of Eden that were in the Garden of Elohim. So he calls the Garden of Eden 
the garden of Elohim. That's what he calls it. Okay, now in the same chapter 31, we also want to read verse number 16. We want to read verse 16 in the same chapter uh, dealing with Eden. Okay, now we read verse 9, so let's now look at verse 16. Now, verse 16 reads thus. I made the nations to shake at the sound of, of, of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descended into the pit and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon and all, all that drink water shall be comforted in the neither parts of the earth, okay? So again, he's talking about Eden, and he's talking about hell, and he points out that all of the trees of, of Eden, they were choice and the best of Lebanon. Okay, so he's making a comparison uh, with Eden and the other places. So we see that in this verse, as well as some of the other things that we have spoken about, is that the pit of hell or hell is here on this earth. And not only was hell here on the earth, but also the Garden of Eden was here on the earth. But when you look at verse 16, it gives no indication that it was two Edens. And then in the same chapter, we also read verse number 18, which says, to whom thou art that to whom art thou thus like in glory, in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the neither parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude said Yah or Adonai Yahweh. Okay, so what is saying here is that even though they glory, it is saying of these kings or the kingdom, he says, to whom art thou thus like in glory? So it's comparing his glory to the glory of that which was in Eden. He said, but yet, even though you may be glorious as Eden, you're going to be brought down. You're going to be brought down to the neither parts of the earth in the midst of the uncircumcised. So we see some comparison because Eden was no doubt a gorgeous place. And so he is, he is making a comparison to many of these glorious empires that these kings had lifted themselves up so much that they look glorious as Eden. But even though he's comparing them with Eden, he is, these, uh, Ezekiel is not saying there were two Edens. He's still pointing out one Eden. Okay, in the same book of Ezekiel, you want to use Ezekiel 36, 35. Okay, Ezekiel 36, 35 says this. And they shall say, this land was desolate because like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities 
are become fenced and are inhabited. Okay, so he's using the word Eden again. So how is he using it? He said, and they shall say, this land was desolate, is become like the Garden of Eden. So in other words, he's saying that there was a land and this land was desolate. And all of a sudden something happened and it became like Eden. Okay, but the point we're trying to establish, it was no two Edens. Is just that Eden was such a magnificent place that when something is renewed and made over again and it looks beautiful and magnificent, they compared it with the Garden of Eden. And so that's another comparison. Not that there was two gardens, but that they are using the beauty of the garden to compare with, a, with an empire that was once desolate. Okay, now that's what Ezekiel had to say. Now let us see what Isaiah have to say about Eden. We want to go to Isaiah, and in Isaiah we want to go to chapter fifty-one, Isaiah chapter fifty-one, and and see what it is that Isaiah has to say about this particular garden. Okay, there's Isaiah chapter fifty-one, and we want to consider verse number three, Isaiah chapter 51 in the third verse. Now, here's what Isaiah says. Now, Isaiah says, for Yah shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her deserts like the garden of Yah. Joy and gladness shall be found therein thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now notice notice what he does, just a little bit different. Now here's what uh, Isaiah said. He's making some comparison that uh, he's going to make Zion uh, a new place, and he compares it to the Garden of Eden. But notice notice how he, he, he puts his words. He said he, he would make Zion. He said he will make her wilderness like Eden and her deserts like the garden of Yah. So notice what he says. He says, going to make it like Eden and the garden of Yah. So he puts the two together, the garden of Eden and also the uh, garden of God or the garden of the Lord or the garden of Yah. He makes that equal. He talks about the wilderness of Eden and also the desert like the garden of Yah. So again, we, we, we don't see any duplicity about having two gardens. We just see he's making a comparison of what he's going to do with Zion. He's going to make a beautiful like garden, like the Garden of Eden in order to accent of how he was going to bring in the renovation. Okay, let us turn to the book of Joel. In the book of Joel, J-O-E-L, and we'll see what, what Joel has, has to say uh, about this. And that's the book of Joel, and we won't lose chapter 2 and verse 3. Joel, chapter 2 and verse 3. And the Bible says, a fire 
devoured before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. So Joel, when he used the word Eden, he's not talking about a two Edens, he's just talking about Eden. He says, he says, the land is as the Garden of Eden before them. He said, that's, that's what's before them. He says, but uh, in so many words, and behind them is a desolate wilderness. So he is saying that when the fire devoured them, then behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as the Garden of Eden before them. So apparently what is going on here is that wherever this area is, it, it was probably a gorgeous area, but it appears here that Elohim was getting ready to destroy it. And so he was saying a fire shall devour it and a flame shall burn it up. Even though it looks gorgeous, it's going to be desolate because I'm going to make it a wilderness. So what he's saying is, you got a gorgeous land, but because of your sins, then I'm going to destroy it. And it's no longer going to look like Eden. And I'm using Eden because that's the type of place that was perfect in, 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 his, in his beauty. And it's called the Garden of Eden and also the Garden of Yah. So what we see here in all of these texts, these texts of scriptures neither state or imply that there was more than one Garden of Eden. These texts of scriptures do not warrant having two gardens. Another interesting concept about the Garden of Eden is how was it introduced to us in the scriptures? Let's, let's, let's see how it's introduced to us. Okay. Now, when we turn to Genesis chapter 2 and verse, verse 8, here, here is what it says. This is how the garden is introduced to us. The Bible says, and Yah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, this is how it's introduced to us. Now, this verse doesn't go into the intricate details about the garden of Eden as it does about the restoration of the earth, okay? It doesn't go into all of that detail, okay? Now, we want to look at Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we want to look at verses 11 and 12, okay? Now, here's what 11 and 12 says of Genesis 1. It said, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And verse 12 says, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and Elohim saw that it was good. Now, when it comes to the Edenic garden, it it's now... What does what what does it say in the Eden Garden? Okay, now what we want to do is look at Genesis chapter two, and we want to look at verses five to seven. 
Okay, now let's look at that. Genesis 2, verses 5 and 7. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 2 says, Every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For Yah Elohim had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Now, when it comes to the Edenic garden, it says he planted it. That's what it says, he planted the garden. Now, this word plant doesn't necessarily mean to plant individual to plant individual trees and herbs or grass. It appears that an entire garden was planted in the eastern portion at one time. Not plant by plant or putting seed by seed or plant by plant, but he planted an entire garden in the place called Eden, okay? So when we read in Genesis 2, 8, and when it says, and Yah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, he introduces the garden there. He introduces. Now from these texts, it strongly appears that there was two things put into place called Eden, which were not there when Elohim established it, okay? Now, the first, the first uh, thing that he placed, the, the first placement, the first thing that he placed was the garden in the eastern portion of Eden. That was the first thing that he did in Eden. He placed a garden there. And it was, there that he put the man in whom he had formed. So we see that in Eden, first of all, he put a whole garden in the eastern portion of Eden. And then once having put the garden there, then he put the man. So those two things were not in Eden at first. The garden was put into Eden. That's why they call it the Garden of Eden. And then the man, he was put in the garden for his home. So from the reading of these texts of scripture, it looks like both the garden and the man were not originally a part of the garden. They were positioned there. It appears that the Garden of Eden was not a product of the earth. Could this be why in Ezekiel 28, 13, it refers to this Garden of Eden as the Garden of Elohim? You see, it, it didn't, it, it says the Garden of Elohim. Now, if the Garden of Elohim, we have to stop to think, wait a minute now. If he called him the Garden of Elohim and also the Garden of Eden, perhaps this garden didn't come from the earth because he was dealing with the earth. And we know that no doubt Elohim does have a garden in heaven because you, if you remember when we read in the book of uh, Exodus, when the children of Israel came out of out of Egypt, they could have gotten into the promised land in 40 days, but it took them 40 years because of their rebellion. But during the 40 years, the Bible says that Elohim fed Israel out of the heaven's bakery. Now, how did they have bread in heaven to rain down the manna on earth? Well, we have to understand through the book of Psalms, it says that they ate angels' food, and the food that they ate 
no doubt came out of the garden of heaven. And when they got it out of the garden of heaven, they made it into manna and they rained it to the earth. So what the Israelites were eating 40 years in the wilderness, they were eating the corn of heaven of what Elohim had sent down to them from his garden. So when we look at this and it talks about the garden of Eden and also the garden of Elohim, then we have to draw the conclusion. Did this garden come from the earth or did it come from heaven? Because we don't see any indication that it came from the earth. It said he planted it here. Furthermore, if Adam was put into the garden, then apparently he wasn't made from the soil in the garden. If he was put in it, he was made from the, from the dust of the earth, not the dust of the Garden of Eden. Even though Adam wasn't taken from the ground of Eden, yet while he was sleeping in his garden home, his wife was brought forth to him so we asked the question, if the Garden of Eden didn't come from this earth, then where did it come from? In this next part, of, in this next section of our study, we will deal with the origin of the Garden of Eden. So as we deal with the origin of the Garden of Eden, our first introduction of the Garden, as we pointed out, was in Genesis 2.8, where it says, and Yah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden. That's the first introduction that we have of the Garden of Eden. Now, this verse doesn't appear to be a part of the creation of the earth described in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11 to 13. Okay, let's look at that. Genesis 1. And we're looking at verses 11 through 13. And here's what it says. It says in verse 11 of the first chapter of Genesis, and Elohim said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind and the, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after its kind. And Elohim saw that it was good. Okay, now when we read these verses, uh, it is talking about what he did to the earth. So, when he did the earth, the earth started restoring itself. It was probably once destroyed according to Genesis 2, 2, and then he's revitalizing the earth. And what Elohim spoke in Genesis 1, 11 came forth in Genesis 1.12. So what we are trying to get some understanding of is that the creation of the vegetation on the third day also include the vegetation of the Garden of Eden. In other words, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when he was populating the vegetation of the earth, did this also include the Garden of Eden? That's what we're trying to find out. Okay. Now, are there two different accounts or are they one and the same? In other words, is Genesis 11 and 12, is this talking about just the earth or does this also incorporate the Garden of Elohim or the Garden of Eden? Now, let us at this juxtaposition examine both these accounts of the earth having plants and the Garden of Eden possessing them. 
We will do this by first comparing the two accounts together and secondly, by contrasting them separately. As we approach this subject from these two angles, the first angle will address the similarities of the vegetation of the earth and the Garden of Eden. And the second angle will address the differences of the vegetation of the earth and the Garden of Eden. Now the former will we'll examine under the heading, the comparative study of the earth and the Garden of Eden. And the latter, we will examine under the heading of the contrastic, the contrastive study of the earth and the Garden of Eden. Now, the methodology we will use in our comparative and contrastive angles will be to take scriptures pertaining to each angle and compare and contrast them as they relate to one another. Now, the comparative study of the earth and the Garden of Eden is the first thing we want to deal with. In this comparative study, we are looking for elements of similarity between the plants of the earth and the Garden of Eden. Now, the comparative scriptures that we use is found in Genesis chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 9 through 13. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, 9 through 13, uh, we've already late read 11 and 12, okay? And it says here in verse 9 of the first chapter of Genesis, And Elohim said, Let the waters under the earth be gathered unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And Elohim called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he sees, and Elohim saw that they were good. And then it goes on to say, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass. And in verse 12, it said, Then the earth brought forth grass and all of the other herbs. Okay, so that's what we are seeing for the earth. Now, that's what he was doing for the earth. Now, let us, let us see what was going on with the Garden of Eden. Now, when we look at the Garden of Eden, uh, we read in verse uh, chapter 2, and starting with verse 8, it says, and Yah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made Yah Elohim to grow every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it goes on in verses 10 to 14, it says, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and thence it parted and became four heads. And the four head rivers are discussed in the other verses on down to 14. So that's what we are looking at. We are looking at the Garden of Eden, and we are looking at the 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 the, the the earth. We are looking at the vegetation of the earth and the vegetation of the Garden of Eden. Now, when we peruse these two passages of scriptures, we see some striking similarities in them. And when we observe the similarities of the plants in the earth and the plants in the Garden of Eden, they are both uh, composed 
of some of the same basic substances, namely the Garden of Eden and also the earth contains, contains the earth, the ground, which was dust. The earth contained water in which the Bible calls seas and rivers. And then the earth contains plants, which was grass, herbs, and trees. And then when we take the same thing and we look at the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden had earth, ground, and dust. The Garden of Eden had water, and it had rivers. The Garden of Eden had plants, and it had trees. So we see some of the same things in the Garden of Eden that we see in the earth. Now, in the comparative analysis of the earth and the garden, we observe the similarities of them. Some may draw the conclusion based upon the similarities that the vegetation of the earth and the vegetation of the garden are one and the same. Now, the proponents of this conclusion may conceivably stand upon this premise because the facts are that both the location and the content of them are the same. However, the sameness in, this, in these areas necessarily mean they originated from the same source. Now that we have observed the comparative angles, let us look at, let us concern ourselves uh, with that of the contrastive angles. We want to contrast now. So our next part is dealing with the contrastive study of the earth and the Garden of Eden. Now, in this contrast, in this contrastive study, we are looking for elements of differences between the plants of the earth and the Garden of Eden. Now, when we look at the comparative scriptures, what, would, what do we see? Now, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, And Elohim said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And it goes on to talk about how he made the dry land and the sea and the waters and the herbs. That's what it says in Genesis 1, 9 to 13 that we've already read. And then when we go to Genesis 2 and we look at verses from 4 to 17, we see how the Garden of Eden uh, had its trees and all of that. And then from 10 to 14, we see the water or the rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden and into it. Okay, so when we probe into these passages of Scripture, we are pondering some distinctions or some distinguishing differences in the vegetation of the earth and that of the garden. So we want to make a kind of a contrast between the vegetation that was in the earth and the vegetation that was in the Garden of Eden. While these differences aren't in the material realm, do we observe them? We want to look at into three areas of creation which the differences occur. These areas deal with time, making, and location. So when we deal with, deal with the Garden of Eden, 
and the earth, we want to deal with their time, their making, and location. Let us scrutinize these three respective factors under the headings of the creation period, the creation process, and the creation positioning, or the creation position. Okay, we want to start with the creation period. Okay, now the now when we turn in Genesis chapter one and verses eleven to thirteen, we don't need to take time to read it. Uh, this is where we want to draw some of our in, uh, emphasis on the creation period. And then when we look at Genesis chapter two and verse eight, we want to make some comparison there as well. So when we deal with the creation period, the creation period concerns itself with the time in which the various aspects of creation were, were brought into being. Now the creation period comprises the chronological boundaries of which some aspect of creation was brought forth. Now in the creation of the heavens and the earth, Moses lays out the chronological boundaries of how long it took to do so. And within this chronological framework, there are the individual time frames for each entity Yah created. When we consider every entity that was created, we discover that Moses wrapped up each of them in a chronological framework. In other words, when he made something, he gave us a framework of time in which he made it. Now, in the six days of creation, Moses documented each entity that was made on earth uh, or within the six days. Okay, now we wanna, what we wanna do, let us take a brief synopsis of each day of creation. In other words, Moses tells us that when the heavens and the earth were created, the entire chronological framework or the creation period was six days. That's what he tells us. Six days, the heavens and the earth were made. But within those six days, there were certain entities that he made that he gave us a time frame on. So we want to look at those time frames. Okay, now when we turn to Genesis chapter one and we look at verses three to five, what did he create? The Bible says that he created light. When did he create light? That was on the first day. So if we ask, if the question is asked, when did he create light? And how long did it take him to create light? We can say he created light on the first day. It took him a day to put the lights in place. That's, that's what he did for the light. Okay. Then in Genesis chapter one, six through eight, what did he create? He created the heaven. The heaven was created on the second day because he divided the waters from from a from above from the waters that were below and he made the heaven so that's the second day so if anybody want to know how long did it take to make the heavens it took him a day and then in genesis 1 9 to 13 it says he created the earth the seas and vegetation that was on the third day the earth the seas and the vegetation the third day genesis 1 14 to 19 what did he create the sun the moon and the stars on the fourth day so when we look up in the heavens, we see the sun, moon, and the stars, we can say, hmm, it took him a whole day 
uh, just to arrange them and to put them in, in order. And then Genesis chapter 1, 20 to 23, what did he create? The fish and the fowl. That was on the fifth day. And so when we see all of the marine life jumping around and all of the uh, fowls flying around on earth and in the heavens, we know that every time we look at a bird, an eagle, every time we see a fish or a whale, we know that it took a whole day to make them. And that was the fifth day of the week. And then in Genesis chapter 24, I mean, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31, it says the entities that he created was the cattle, the creeping things, the beasts, and man. That was on the sixth day. So when we look at all of the beasts and the creeping things on this earth and mankind, we said it took a whole day for him to make them, which was on the sixth day. Now, when we go into chapter 2, of Genesis, it speaks about some of the same entities which were created in the six-day time frame of chapter one. Now, chapter two of creation doesn't entail all that was made during the six days of chapter one, chapter uh, of chapter one. Now, chapter two isn't written in a chronological sequence. In other words, when you read chapter two, it is not talking about time. But when you talk about chapter one, it's giving us a time sequence of when these things were created. Okay. Consequently, the inquiry we raise at this juncture is that some of the things which are mentioned in chapter two aren't mentioned in chapter one, even though the earth the water and man and woman are mentioned. No garden of Eden is mentioned or spoken of in chapter one. We don't see it. Now we see man was mentioned in chapter one and also chapter two. Woman was mentioned in chapter one and chapter two. The beast is mentioned in chapter one and chapter two. But we don't see anything about the garden being mentioned. Why is this? Moses neither gives an explanation of a garden nor a time frame for it in chapter two. Moses merely introduces the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.8. However, it doesn't appear that the garden was created in the six-day time frame. Moses simply says that the Garden of Eden was planted, not necessarily saying when it was planted, this leads us to believe that it was already in existence from the destruction of the previous world. Now, when we, when we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 11 through 12 and Genesis 2 verses 5 through 6 and Genesis chapter 2 verses 8 through 14. Now, we dealt we dealt already with the creation uh, with the creation period. We dealt with the creation period. Now, in these verses, we are dealing with the creation process. We're going to look at the creation process. Now, here in these passages of Scripture, 
Moses has given to us the process by which Elohim brought into existence both the vegetation of the earth and the vegetation of the Garden of Eden. Now, what we want to be able to do is to discern the differences we see in the process of bringing forth of the herbs, or the bringing forth of the earth vegetation and the process of bringing forth the garden's vegetation. There's a difference. Okay, let us see what the difference is. Okay, let us go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Now, here's what the Bible says. It says in verse 11, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth herb yielding seed, and the herb yielding, yielding seed, and the tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and Elohim saw that it was good. Okay, now, what is this saying? Now, when we, use, when we look at Genesis 1.11, it says, Elohim said, let the earth. In other words, when he dealt with the vegetation of the earth, he speaks to the earth. And when he spoke to the earth, he told the earth what to do. Okay? But then when we look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible says, and Elohim, Genesis 2a says, and Yah Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now notice here, they said he planted the garden. Now isn't that different between speaking something to an, into existence and planting something into existence? There's a difference. So we see that the earth was spoken to by the voice of Elohim and it brought forth the herbs. But when it came to the Garden of Eden, the Bible says he planted the garden. It didn't say he spoke it. He took time to plant it. Okay. So that's one of the uh, uh, processes that, 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 that we see. Okay, now let us turn to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice what it says. In verse 6, it's talking about the earth now. In Genesis 2, 6, it says, But there went up a myth from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. So the Bible says the way that the earth got water, how did it get it? It said there went up a mist out of the earth and it watered the whole face of the earth. In other words, if the earth was being watered, it came up from the earth itself. And when it came up out of the earth, it watered the earth. Okay, so let us look at Genesis 2.10. In Genesis 2.10, notice what it says. It says, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. Now, we want to look at that just briefly. Now, we notice that the earth was watered by a myth coming up, but the Garden of Eden had a different water system. The Bible says that a, gar a, a, a river ran out of Eden into the garden, and then from the garden, this same river, according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, it parted into four heads. What were those four heads? In other words, can you imagine that in Eden, there was a river that came from the west and it flowed to the east? Because that's where the Garden of Eden was, in the eastern part of Eden. And when that river came into the Garden of Eden, 
Then when it went out of the Garden of Eden, it had four heads. And the Bible says about these four heads. In verse 11, it says the name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasses the whole land of Hevelah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedillium and Onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gahorn. The same is it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hadikel. That is which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. So even the watering system was different. One had the mist, the other had a river that was given the water resources to Eden. So we can see even from the creational process that it was different, okay? And then we have the next uh, thing. We have the creation uh, uh, position. And we want to look at the creation position. So when we look at it from these various angles, Moses is telling us something that if we look closely at it, that we can see that there's a difference. We've already seen the creative period, the creative processes. Now we're looking at the creative position. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11, notice what it says. Genesis 1, 11. The Bible says, and Yah said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yell and seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Okay? Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6, notice what it says. We're talking about the creation position. In other words, he positions things in a certain way. Now, here what the Bible says. The Bible says, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For Yah, Elohim, had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. And verse 6 says, But there went up a myth from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Okay. And then when we read in Genesis 2.8 again, it says, And Yah, Elohim, planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, we want to look at these two analogies. We have the whole earth, and then we have the Garden of Eden, which is a part of it. Now, what we notice in this part of our discourse is the layout of the Garden of Eden in relation to the earth. Now, the Bible says, a myth from the earth watered the whole face of the ground. However, when it comes to the layout of Adam and Eve's garden home, we read that it says it was planted eastward. Now, what are we observing in the eastward positioning is a rather unique direction. What is so unique about this position is that east is relegated to the rising of the sun. In other words, when you look at the Hebrew word for east, one of the words means 
the rising of the sun. Where does the sun rise? It rises in the east every day and it sits in the west. It does that every day. That's a phenomenon. So a, so a position Elohim uses to direct his people was east. There are a number of places found in scripture that Elohim speaks about the east. He talks about an east wind in Exodus 10, 13, and also Exodus 14, 21. He speaks about the eastern star in Matthew 2 and 3. He speaks about eastward coming of Yeshua, like the lightning shine from the east unto the west, even so will the Son of Man be, Matthew 24, 27. Now, east, in the book of Revelation, it says that an angel came forth from the east, Revelation 7, 2. However, one of the most impressive things about the east is that this same Moses tells us later on in the book of Exodus about the earthly sanctuary, tabernacle. And we want to look at that, and we are close at this point. Let's turn to Exodus. Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 38. And when we read in Exodus chapter 38, looking, we're going to start at verse number 13. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, and for the east side, eastward, 50 cubits, the hanging of the one side of the gate were 15 cubits, the pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the other side of the court gate, on this hand and on that hand, were hangings of 15 cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. All the hangings of the court round about were of fine twine linen, and the sockets for the pillars were of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver, and the overland of their chapters of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filled with silver, and the hanging for the gate of the court was of needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, and 20 cubits was the length, and the height in the breadth was five cubits, answerable to the hangings of the court. Now, when we look at this, what are we seeing? We're seeing that in order to get into the sanctuary, they had to go in by the east. Now, what is this saying? This is saying that if the Garden of Eden, the way that you came into it was from the east, isn't this saying perhaps the reason why they called this the Garden of Eden and also the Garden of Elohim is because the Garden of Eden may have been a, a sanctuary where Elohim came to worship because when Adam and Eve, at the end of the day, they would go and meet their Savior at the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. So it's pointing to the possibility that if Satan was once in the Garden of Eden and he walked among the stones, that no doubt this was a sanctuary where Yeshua must have met with Satan in the Garden of Eden on this earth, even before Adam came. And so now we are getting into the sanctuary and we want to see if at one time that the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary and where uh, Lucifer may have ruled. And as a result of him becoming corrupt, he took it away from 
Lucifer and he gave it to Adam and Eve and it was never destroyed because when we read in the book of Revelation, it says that the tree of life was in heaven and we know that the tree of life, when it was down here, it was where? It was on earth. So no doubt he preserved the Garden of Eden in heaven. And so we want to take on next week what this is all about and was it with worship and was this Garden of Eden a sanctuary? Father in heaven, as we continue to trace down the empires upon this world before Adam and Eve came, that we can be able to discern that there was something that was going on here. And as we discern it, we may be the better for it. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. amen. And amen. Amen. So uh, where did the theory of two garden at Edens come from? I think some commentaries, when you read it, uh, uh, they, 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 they say it may be in two gardens of Eden. Now, uh -huh. you know, it's, it's interesting that you raise that point. Uh, and I'm not trying to come down on a race of people, but uh, even when I was reading in some of the commentaries about the Queen of Sheba, now, they say the Queen of Sheba, her empire was so big and so large that many of the commentaries, when they read that, they say that it must have been... Uh, it must have been two Shebas because the, because the area that she ruled was so large. Now, you're dealing with two things. You're dealing with racism and you're dealing with sexism. Mm -hmm. Now, racism is that they felt that a black woman could not rule an empire bigger than what a man ruled. Mm. And so they said it must have been two Shebas, or I'm not two Shebas, but uh, two uh, uh, uh uh, I, I think her empire was so big that they, 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 I think they tried to divide it. I think they did say it was two Shebas because a woman couldn't rule that, that far, uh -huh. uh, which was sexism. In other words, they were saying a, a man could rule as, as big as that, but not a woman. Uh -huh. You know, they didn't come out and say a woman couldn't do it or a black woman couldn't do it. They just simply said it must have been two Shebas and because there was two Shebas, then she must have ruled a much smaller, smaller area. But the sexism came in when they attributed this to, to a woman, because according to the historians, they said Charlie Maine, uh, he ruled a great empire. And he said that Charlie Maine, his empire was so big that the sun never set on his empire. Well, mm. if that's true about Charlie Maine, mm -hmm. you can take the European empire and put it within Africa almost three times. So if the Queen of Sheba ruled that area, she ruled an uh, area much greater than a man. And so they didn't want to give her credit. So when it comes to the Garden of Eden, there's some scholars who say that we uh, it, it must have been two uh, Gardens of Eden because uh, you got Adam and then you got the, uh, 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 the covering cherub in one. In uh -huh. Adam and one, so they they say it's two, but 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 the thing about it, they don't give any evidence of the two. Uh -huh. See, a lot of times I read stuff, and when I read it, I, I'll I'll document. I'm saying now, here the Bible is saying one thing, and and y'all saying it's two. The Bible ne never said there was two queens of Sheba's. The Bible never said there was two Garden of Eden. So where do they get that from? Uh -huh. They are they are putting their own 
own injection in there because it doesn't agree with something they want to agree with. Wow. Okay. So uh, the Garden of Elohim and the Garden of Eden were two different gardens? Mm -mm. They were the same. Oh, they were the same That's what I was trying to point out. Yeah, they were the same. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of God, that's like in some scriptures, it pointed out specifically that the Garden of Eden and the Garden of God were the same. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they were the same. They weren't different. So what, what was the garden, uh, the garden east of Eden that's described in Genesis 2.8? What was it? Yeah, because it said it, um, in Genesis 2.8. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he planted he planted the Garden of Eden. It said that and Yahweh Elohim planted a garden eastward in Eden. Oh, it's eastward in Eden. Okay, so mm, it's yeah, still in that's Eden. the location. That's what I was okay. trying to point out about the creation position. See, when you look at how uh, Elohim positioned stuff, uh-huh. it gives you a clue to what was what was going on. He put it in the eastern portion. He made sure you understood that because Moses put the word eastward. Uh-huh. And I was trying to point out that when you go into the sanctuary, you got to go in from the east. And mm. if Garden of Eden was east, then that may have something, a lot to do with the sanctuary. So my, my next question is this, too. Um, based on what the scripture says about Adam and Eve being put out the garden mm-hmm. and talking about how also what I've read in the book of Adam and Eve, I don't know how as valuable that is, but mm-hmm. um, is it possible that the garden of Eden still could be on this earth? But if this earth is flat, could it possibly be beyond the dome that this earth is covering? In all, well, uh, <clears throat> well, let's look at it from this standpoint. Uh-huh. You know, I think <clears throat> it's like people are still looking for Solomon Riches <clears throat> on the earth. I uh-huh. think they are still looking for the Garden of Eden on the earth. But uh, the thing that I I consider is the fact that. I don't believe that the Garden of Eden is on the, on this earth. Okay. I think it. I think when you read, let's let's turn to Genesis chapter one. No, not not chapter one, but chapter three. Uh, in chapter three, what we see here, it says, uh, in in the third chapter, verse uh, twenty three, it says, "Therefore, Yah Elohim sent forth." from the Garden of Eden to till the ground whence he was taken. So so now, when we consider the fact that when Adam had made a breach in the covenant, mm-hmm. that verse 24 says, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east, okay, of the Garden of Eden. Now notice that he said he placed at the east Mm-hmm. So that that must have been the entrance, just like when you go into sanctuary, that must have been the entrance mm-hmm. of the Garden of Eden. He placed cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Okay, now, if that is so, that the angels kept it, that meant that Adam and Eve could not get back in there because mm-hmm. they guarded it. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. That meant that nobody could get in there. You may can come around it, but you couldn't get in it. So now, if we say that Elohim planted a garden in the eastern portion of Eden, uh-huh. then if he planted the whole garden on this earth, could not we say also that he took the same garden that he had planted, he took it up and he took it back to heaven? Why do we say he, take it, he took it back to heaven? Well, because the book of Revelation says that we, <laughs> we at one time, uh-huh. we, if we are overcomers, we will eat of the tree of life. So if the tree of life is in heaven, it suggests to us that also the garden must be in heaven because that's where the tree was. Uh-huh. Okay, uh-huh. now... Let us turn, let us get some evidence of that. So when we turn to Revelation uh, chapter, let me see, chapter 22. Now here's what Revelation chapter 22 says. It says here in verse 2, it said, And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life. Now, the last time we found out about the tree tree of life, where was it? <laughs> it was in the Garden of Eden. Uh-huh. And Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out, it was still in the Garden of Eden. And now in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it said the tree of life was by that river, and its roots arched over the, over the river, and it went straight up, and it said that this particular tree of life bore 12 matters of fruit. Uh-huh. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. And we read that also in the book of, of, of Ezekiel. So apparently, he must have taken it back to heaven. It's no longer on this earth. Mm-hmm. And no doubt, when he made the new heavens and the new earth, he probably would have restored it back down on the earth. Okay. Because when Satan sinned, it looked like he didn't destroy it. And when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't destroy it. He just put them out. So he probably put Satan out of it, and he put Adam and Eve out of it, mm-hmm. and he took it on back to heaven. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. And with that, we will transition into our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So today, and let's talk about it, I want to talk about is Yahusha the same all the time or does he change? Does he change his mind? So if you have your Bibles, I want to go over one verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8. And it reads, Yahusha the Messiah, the same yesterday and today and forever. So... It says that Yahusha is the same all the time, meaning to me, it, he never changes. So my first question, Pastor, is if it says that Yahusha, the Mashiach, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is also the Father the same today, yesterday, and forever? 
Yeah, I, I would think they, they they would be consistent, you know, with one another. It's interesting that you read this text because even in the book of Hebrews itself, it's it says that uh, when Elohim had made a covenant with his his people, that once Yeshua died, then that covenant could not be changed. Now we must understand that the covenant that he made with his people was dependent upon the life of Yeshua. Uh -huh. Now, when Yeshua came, he lived out the life of the covenant that Elohim wanted him to live out. Uh -huh. Okay, so now, he and his father, they both, uh, they both dealt, they both dealt with the same covenant. Okay, now, and when they made the covenant, then what we see here is that the covenant that they made was the covenant that they both went by. Uh -huh. And man was supposed to also go by the same covenant. Uh -huh. So when man broke that covenant, then that's when the plan of salvation kicked in. And what was that all about? It was all about the fact that Elohim and uh, the father and the son, who were both Elohims, that they had made a covenant and they made this covenant for mankind. Uh -huh. So once they made the covenant, that means everybody had to go by the covenant, the father, the son, and, and his people. Uh -huh. So when his people broke it, then Yeshua died in order to bring them back into the covenant relationship. And the Bible says that when he died, he couldn't change the covenant. Uh -huh. They call us, uh, uh, in the book of Revelation, I mean, the book of Hebrews, it says, once a tester, now the tester is the one who has the covenant. And if he don't change that covenant while he's living, once he died, he can't change it. Uh -huh. It's just like today, say for instance, you make a covenant and, and you put some people in the covenant and you get mad at those people and you say, well, you know, while I'm living, I'm going to take them out the covenant. Uh -huh. Well, you can do that because you're still living. But if, say, for that instance, that person puts somebody in the covenant and and uh, the person died, and somebody said, well, I want that person out of the covenant. Well, you can't get them out of the covenant, no matter how mad you are at them, because when the person died, if they didn't change their covenant, you can't change it. Mm -hmm. So when Yeshua died, the covenant couldn't be changed, because if you're going to change it, he had to change it while he was living, because once he died, that was, it, was, it, it was set. Mm -hmm. okay. So now, if they had changed, now here's the problem. If they... If they could have changed, it would been it would not have been any need for him to die. Wow. Because he would have said, wait a minute, I can change this thing. So I, I don't need to die. Uh -huh. But they couldn't change it. Okay. Now, when we look at Revelation chapter uh, 13 and verse 8, now notice what it says. Revelation 13, 8. The Bible says. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, when he and his father made mankind, they said, if man sinned, we got to make a way of salvation for them. Uh -huh. What were they saving them from? They were saving them from the fact of death because the covenant says that if you broke it, Somebody had to die. 
And if somebody had to die, it either had to be the person who sinned or somebody else had to take their place. But Yeshua said the first death, uh, you may die, but the second death you want, which is eternal death, and that's what he was dealing with, that you don't have to die in the second death. And so by him not changing the covenant, then he could go through with his death to save us. But if he could have changed the covenant, uh -huh. then he could have said, well, I don't need to die because if they sin, I can, I can change it and they can, they can still live. But the Bible says that, that when Yeshua was going to the cross, he said to his father three times, he said, Father, let this bitter cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He said that three times. What was he saying? He was saying to his father, if there be any other way that I can save them without dying, then let me have it. And he was pointing out to us, there was no other way. Uh -huh. That was the only way. And if he didn't change it while he was living, he could have said, Father, wait a minute, I ain't going to die for these folk. I'm not going to die for them. And he could have gone back to heaven and rested, and he was still lived eternally, but we would have been lost. Uh. But the fact is, he didn't change it. Because he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, Father. He said, your will. And I came to do your will. And he went on and died. And then we could be saved if we come back to accept his life. And so, no. They, uh, he didn't change his will. He's the same today, uh, uh, yesterday, and forever. He's, he's the same. And when we look at that sameness, uh -huh. it's between his father and himself. And then the, all of those who accept his death, we also become a part of the same premise that once we are redeemed, that we will not change today, yesterday, or tomorrow, because we have brought into that covenant that they have, which is an eternal covenant, and we'll have an eternal covenant, all because of the fact that we're all on the same page, the Father, the Son, and us. No, they, they, they weren't different. They were the same. They, they, they don't change. So was there any instances where they changed or thought about changing? Yeah, I was pointing out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, I don't think he was really thinking about changing. I think for our purpose, he was saying, Father, uh, if it be any other way to save these folk. Because uh -huh. he knew what the Father's will was, and the, and the Father knew what he had told him. Uh -huh. And so he, he said, Father, is there any, any other way? But he and his father had already discussed it, that if man sinned, according to the book of Revelation 13, 12, it says he was a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, which meant that if man sinned, he would go down and die for man. The reason why they call him lamb is because that's what the sacrificial system uh, we refer to when they had a sacrifice, either lamb or goat. And they call him the lamb of Elohim. This is why John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of Elohim. Uh -huh. He didn't say, behold, Yeshua. He said, behold, the lamb in which John was pointing out that this is the man that is getting baptized. He came to die for you because you broke the covenant. Uh -huh. And the covenant can't be changed because if you change the covenant, he didn't need to die. Uh -huh. There was never a time that he strayed from the covenant. So with that, well, how can people come up with the argument if this verse says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then nothing changes. 
how can people come up with the argument of eating pork, which he says for us not to do, keeping mm-hmm. Sunday, which he says not to do, just basically violating the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the covenant, and everything else? Well, see, the thing is, is uh, and they, they're not really thinking it through. No. Mm. They, 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 they're not thinking it through. Carl, how can you say Elohim gave something in, in the Old Testament and then it's done away with the New Testament when the Old Testament is built upon the New Testament? Mm-hmm. I mean, the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's all they had in, 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 in Yeshua's day was the Old Testament. We get the New Testament as we see how they lived after, the, after, the, uh, after they had gotten the Torah. Uh-huh. See, what, what Elohim gave Moses was the Torah, and that's what he wanted them to live out because in the Torah was the covenant. Okay, so when, 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 when they did that, the dietary laws and the dress laws and the health laws, all of that was already in the Torah. They knew, mm. knew, knew that they were not going to eat a piece of pork. They, okay. they, they knew that. And this is why in the book of the Maccabeans, you know, which is not in our Bible, they would not eat those things and because they wouldn't eat them they were put to death mm. okay no it never changed but what people want to say uh because they've been taught so many years that you don't have to go by that law anymore because that's been nailed to the cross well isn't it interesting you said that's been nailed to the cross but at the same time some of the very things you said have been nailed to the cross you trying to create it again uh-huh. And it isn't strange that all the sins that we have was nailed to the cross, but yet still, when it comes to eating stuff that he said don't eat mm-hmm. and keeping days that he said don't eat, which is sinful because if you're doing anything contrary to what the Bible says, that's sin. Now, if that's sin, should not uh, Christmas, Easter, and Sunday, should not that be nailed to the cross too because that's sin? Mm. But they don't nail that to the cross. Wow. But they'll nail all of the true stuff to the cross. And then when they get, <laughs> get, get to their days, they say, well, since everything has been nailed to the cross, then the blood, the blood of Yeshua, that makes everything clean. But that doesn't make sense. That don't make sense. How are you going to make pork clean when he says it's unclean? How are you going to make uh, 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 the, the, the first day a holy day when he says the seventh day? Yeah. How can you change that? He said heaven and earth have to be done away with before I change my word. Mm. No, he didn't change. What man did, man made some changes, but Elohim never never made those changes. They're trying to justify it because they've been taught. Everything been nailed to the cross. Well, wait a minute. You say everything been nailed to the cross? Mm. Well, why is, why is your church paying tithe? Mm. Wow, yeah. Why didn't they nail that to the cross? Y'all yeah. sure ain't said that nailed to the cross. Yeah. You know? And then when and then when you when, when then when when you sell them uh <clears throat> like people say, well, uh, these people, uh, they, they are practicing sodomy. Well, if everything been nailed to the cross, what's wrong with that then? <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, you nail what you want to the cross, but then mm-hmm. stuff that you don't want, you don't nail to the cross. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Either it was nailed to the cross or it wasn't. Yeah. The only thing that was nailed to the cross, and the Bible explicitly explains that, it was the ceremonial well, I wouldn't say the ceremonial system, but the sacrificial system of the animals. Uh-huh. The book of Hebrews said that was nailed, and it points out plainly, but it says that the old covenant 
was replaced by the new covenant, which was the blood of Yeshua. And also the old covenant was what they were trying to do in their own power. But the new covenant is what they do through the power of the Holy Spirit. No, he never changed it. Mm -hmm. He made a gave other means to obtain it, but he never changed this covenant. So if pork was back bad back then, it's bad now. If not keeping the first day of the week <clears throat> was sin back then, it's a sin now. Wow. Wow. Deep. Um, we have a question that was uh submitted last week in regards mm -hmm. to when we was discussing I believe Halloween. Someone mm -hmm. asked, and the question this week is, uh, I guess Christian churches have trunk or treat events and call it outreach, an outreach ministry event. What do you think about that? Uh, uh, me personally, I, 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 I don't subscribe to it at all. I'll tell you why. Uh -huh. Number one is uh, Elohim has his own uh, festival days that you can reach out with. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't have to use the pagan days to reach out to try to save people through paganism. It's just like people say, you know, that uh, they can reach out uh, by, you know, having certain government holidays in the church. Uh -huh. But Elohim didn't institute those days for what uh, he 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 wanted. Uh -huh. And then the second thing that you have to look at is is that. Um, if you say you you're having an outreach, then you have to describe to me how does Elohim give an outreach, you know, to the community, and what is the outreach for? Is mm -hmm. is is it to bringing them into the ranks of the church? And if it's to bring them to the ranks of the church, then I would hope that if that's what a church is doing, then what type of literature or what type of teachings are you teaching them about Halloween that when you get them, they can see that is wrong and stop doing it. Uh -huh. But most time, here's what I hear. Here's what I hear. They said the whole world is doing it. So we need uh -huh. to take advantage of it. And some churches even have, have it where they, they may have, have certain, certain, certain programs, but, but when you look at what they're doing, they are imitating the world, just like the world celebrates this stuff. They do it the same way. And then they stick a little, what they call Jesus in there. And the Jesus that they stick in there is not relevant enough to bring the person to uh, the true. Uh -huh. Now, what I'm saying is basically this. If Halloween, you're going to use that to bring or invite people to your church. And then when you get them there, you, you don't have anything to refute Halloween. What good is it? Only thing that you've done is bring a person uh, who believes in Halloween to your church, and when you get them there, you got nothing to give them. Mm. Now, yeah. now, if you had something to give them to say that Halloween is wrong and to point out in the Bible how it's wrong, that's one thing. But in my understanding, I have never seen, even when churches tell me that well, we, 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 we celebrate Christmas in order to show the world what the true meaning is. And I said, well, what is the true meaning? Mm -hmm. They have nothing to say. <laughs> they don't even know what the true meaning. They are so caught up in getting the gifts themselves. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they said, well, we, we, we know Christmas is wrong, but it's for the children. 
Well, apparently it's not for the children because the grown-ups are the ones that's perpetuating this stuff. Mm, wow. Yeah. So, so my, so, so my thing is, you, you lay out for me a church that says that they can use it for an outreach, and then when you use it for an outreach, let them show me a program once they get to people of what they're going to teach them about Halloween. Mm, and wow. the reason why I say that so strongly is because many of the churches that celebrate Halloween, Christmas, and Easter, you look at the literature that they put out. Many, much of their literature that they put out is advocating Halloween, Thanksgiving, Easter, and Christmas. And they don't say anything is wrong with it. They don't even put it in their periodicals that anything is wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I know one church that does tell you what is wrong with these holidays. Mm-hmm. This is why when you look look at George Myers, T.D. Jakes, and, and different people, I've never heard them express to me, and these are some of the top preachers in the world, mm-hmm. of what Halloween and Easter and Christmas does. If you if you know of any program, I would like to turn in and to see the program of where they showed me whether Halloween outreach saved a soul or mm. how they could use it as saving souls. Mm-hmm. That like some people say, well, when when they come to my house, I give them a track. But what what is that track telling? Mm-hmm. Is that track telling them to keep the true day, or is it simply that it's just wrong? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm very cautious about using methods that the Bible doesn't use. I think our methodology should be used according to what Yeshua did, follow his methods, and I think his methods alone will give us the success in the outreach of bringing souls, not perpetuating Halloween. All right. And we just have a comment from one of our viewers, and it reads, Shalom, greetings, to the, greetings in the name of our Most High Yah, just wanted to let you know how your ministry means to my family. We greatly appreciate all you do for the kingdom, and thank you very much for your weekly teachings that help us understand so much more about Yahuwah's word. We send our love to the pastor and all the Mishpukah. May Yahusha be with you as we continue to walk in this journey of righteousness. We pray you all have a very blessed Shabbat and amazing upcoming week. Okay, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to send those very encouraging words, and we appreciate this so much. Thank you. All right, well, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out for this week? Our loving Father, we thank you then that we can congregate and to be able to discuss your word and most of all to have a relationship with you and with one another. And as we continue to study together, we may grow together. And not only just to grow together, but be on the same path to go to the kingdom of Elohim. And as we've been studying, and we're coming to a conclusion of these studies, that we may have learned things that can better our relationship, not only with one another, but most of all with thee. So as we anticipate a new week, we thank you for the Shabbat, that we can have a spiritual rest to renew us mentally, physically, and spiritually going to a new week, that you would be with us. Bless those who've had hardships, O Heavenly Father, and difficulties, that you would continue to compensate and give them the things that they stand in need. And if they had lost their joy, give them a peace. If they had lost their love, we ask that they would give them the affection that they need. And whatever they stand in need, that you would provide it. And we thank you for another opportunity of being able to be in your presence this day. 
And as we close this service, maybe as we go throughout the rest of the Shabbat, that we may be blessed. In Yeshua's name, we do, we do ask this prayer. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Well, we hope you have thoroughly enjoyed this uh, podcast. If you have any thing that you will topics you would like us to cover and let's talk about it or you have something that you may want the pastor to speak on please reach out to us at science of the covenant at gmail.com just shoot us an email um also if you still just have any questions that might pop into your head after the podcast is over shoot us an email also at science of the covenant at gmail.com and we will get to it on our next podcast you don't want to miss this uh, the next section as the pastor gets ready to wrap up this series on this world's kingdoms. So you want to make sure to tune in, mark it on your calendars, set the date on your phone. Every Shabbat at 3 p.m. Science of the Covenant we are on. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before Yahuwah to walk after Yahuwah and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant, which is written in this book. Second Chronicles 34, 1. And before I go, if you haven't did it, please hit the like button. It helps us out. Until next week, Shalom.